everybody is uh, finding their seat. Two announcements. Week from Saturday is the men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting, and that's uh, that's really a great time for the men in the church to get together, to get to know each other, and to have a really good breakfast together and talk about the Word together. Also, plan ahead for the fall picnic. Start praying now for the weather. That it will not rain, not be wet. October the 20th, Saturday, October the 20th. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure that we are in a right relationship with the Lord, spiritually prepared to study the word, uh, where we are walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, because it is God the Holy Spirit who is the uh, means and the power for living the Christian life in the church age. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this time that we have together to just focus on you, to get away from all of the things that are bombarding our minds uh, during the day, the different issues related to work or family uh, or whatever it may be, that we can focus on that which has eternal value and eternal significance. It is your word that stabilizes us. It is your word that is a reminder that we are to depend upon you, our rock, and that you give us stability and joy and happiness. And Father, in the midst of a crazy world, we know that the only uh, only truth is your truth. And so we must study your word as our Lord prayed, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. And Father, we pray that you would Help us to understand the things that we learned tonight about your church and our distinctive role within the body of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, last time and the time before, coming out of our study in 1 Peter chapter 5, where it talks about elders who are to shepherd and to oversee the flock, it introduces us to the concepts related to leadership in the local church. So we are looking at what the New Testament teaches about leadership in the local church just to understand what is going on here with this term. Why do we find that almost every reference to the leaders in the church focuses on elders? not pastors. In fact, only a couple of times do we have the noun for pastor, uh, poimenos, used in reference to the leader of a local church. The primary term that is used uh, is the term elder. We also have the term episkopos, 
which is the Greek word. Notice it has an E or epsilon at the beginning, episkopos. It came into Latin as biskopos, biskopos, which is where we get our English word bishop. Okay? So where, how did all of this develop? Well, that's what we are studying, and tonight we're going to be looking at the leadership, development of leadership in the early church. So the First Peter passage starts off emphasizing the term elders, and then you have the verb shepherd, which is a command and a participle for overseers, and that these three words are key. In fact, there are two passages, one we may get to tonight, in Acts 20 and one here that uses these three words, either the noun or the verb. In, in Acts 20, it uses the noun episkopos, whereas here it uses the verb episcopo. So we're moving into this area of the church and ecclesiology. I listed six questions that we're going to address in our study. First of all, the terminology where we started last time. Second, we also started with this a little bit. When did the church begin? That's a very important question. Third, how did leadership develop in the early church as described in Acts? So remember, Acts is describing what they did. It is descriptive. That's an important word when we're studying the book of Acts. It describes what they did. It is not prescribing what they did. Prescribing is telling you to do what they did, whereas description just tells you what they did. And this is one of the big problems in uh, with the whole Pentecostal charismatic movement is that they look at acts as descriptive, I mean, excuse me, as prescriptive instead of descriptive. So we have to understand that narrative history in Scripture often describes what happened. It is not telling us to do or to follow what happened. Sometimes it is, but we always have to be careful. We'll see how, fourth, we'll see how the leadership developed in the early centuries of the church age and how these different forms of church government developed. Fifth, we'll look at the scriptural terms that are used for biblical leaders, and then last, the roles of deacons and elders. So, in terms of terminology, just to review, the basic word for, for the church is ecclesia. It is used in the Old Testament, but not in the technical sense that it's used in the Old Testament. I mean, used in the New Testament. It's used in the Old Testament to refer to the assembly or the congregation of Israel, but it's, and sometimes it's used in reference to Israel as they assemble to go into uh, battle or into war. Uh, it is not ever used in the same sense that it is used of a distinctive body of believers that are united with Christ, which is how it is used in the, in the New Testament. So it is this concept of the church as the body of Christ that is so important because you never had that prior to uh, the, the New Testament. You, the, the Messiah had not come yet, but we have passages like Colossians 1.24, which talks about his, that is Christ's body, which is the church. 
Colossians 2.19, that he is the head of the church. Uh, we are to hold fast to the head. That means in we are to be subordinate to him and obedient to him. And it is from him that all the body, that is all believers, are nourished. That is spiritually, uh, spiritually nourished. We're nourished through his word, which as he prayed in John 17, uh, 17, we are sanctified by his word. He is the logos and it is, um, God's word log, the logos that is truth. So there's a little, as John's uh, famous for, there's some double entendre going on there in that particular verse. We talked about this passage last week that uh, Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. The body is his body. We're now part of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. And there's one body, Ephesians 4, 4. And this is the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 12. Now, these verses are going to crop up again and again because they have various implications for understanding the nature of this new entity that comes into existence on the day of Pentecost. It is the body of Christ. Now, I've already stated the church came into existence on the uh, day of Pentecost, but we need to understand that. And why is that important? It's important for two reasons. Reason number one is coming out of the uh, period about the second or third century AD, you had the rise of allegorical interpretation. Allegorical interpretation first, it was always there because it was part of Greek and Roman culture. But the early church in the first uh, couple of centuries after the apostles uh, primarily leaned towards a more literal interpretation, but because of the influence of Platonism and Neoplatonism in that culture, it wasn't a thought-through, consistent literal interpretation as, as we would see today. It was a rather uh, naive and somewhat ambiguous idea of, li of literal interpretation. But uh, Origen is the first one to come along and to systematize uh, a an allegorical interpretation, and he took the idea from Platonism. In Platonism, you have three three elements to the human being. You have the body, the physical part. You have the soul, which is the mental part, and then you have the spirit, which is the spiritual part. And he would use that to structure how everything is. The body is, is the most insignificant. In fact, because we see corruption throughout uh, the physical world, the body is, is, is corrupt and the physical or material plane and is corrupt. And therefore, he would tie that to the physical or literal meaning of, of the text. So the physical or literal meaning is corrupt and, and it's not important. It's not that significant. Then there is a soul meaning. There's an intellectual meaning uh, to the text, but the most important is the spiritual meaning to the text. And the spiritual meaning would not necessarily have anything to do with the literal meaning of the text. It, it was completely divorced from that. And so that you would end up with interpretations such as God's promise to give Abraham a land that was bordered by the 
uh, the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, by the River of Egypt, which is probably the Wadi El Arish, and by the Euphrates River. That sounds pretty much like a real estate uh, map to me, but when you get that allegorized, then it becomes heaven. And that's what God was promising Abraham. Of course, Abraham never understood that God was promising him heaven. He, he believed that God was promising a physical piece of real estate. That was literal interpretation. But Origen introduces this. It is formalized into the Roman Catholic Church through uh, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. And this becomes the dominant way to interpret the Bible until you get to the Protestant Reformation. Now, under allegorical interpretation, then, words and terms don't mean, don't carry their literal meaning when you're interpreting them. Therefore, when you read Israel in the Old Testament, you're reading about uh, the church before Christ. And so Israel is not literal. Uh, Israel, that's the uh, descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, it is Spirit, the spiritual church in the Old Testament. When you read about the church in the New Testament, it's spiritual Israel. And so you to completely break down this distinction between Israel and the church. And that became a core element within Roman Catholic theology, what became known as Roman Catholic theology and dominated until you get about a hundred years after the Protestant Reformation. It took a while for them to work out this implications of a literal interpretation in every branch of theology. But it didn't work for every area of Protestant the Protestantism. You had, of course, Martin Luther as the founder of what became known as the Lutheran Church. You had the other major element of the Reformation period, Protestant church was called Reformed Theology, and it was influenced by John Calvin, a lawyer who became a theologian. A lot of lawyers become theologians over the years. Uh, there you have John Calvin, who is a, a French, and on the Fr and he uh, has hit most of his ministry on the in French Switzerland in Geneva. You had another man named Ulrich Zwingli, who is the German Swiss, uh, and he is in um, Zurich. And in fact, I've been there to the church where he preached. And beautiful, uh, they have a statue of him out in front. Um, and you have, and these are the founders of re the Reformed stream of theology. You had Anabaptist. The word Anna, the prefix, means to be baptized again. Everybody was baptized as an infant because of the state church. So to enter into, uh, enter into the church, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you were baptized as an infant. They got that. See, when you break down the distinction between Israel and the church, then circumcision becomes compared to baptism. And so since you were to be circumcised on the, on the eighth day, you are to be baptized on the eighth day. So infants were all baptized uh, very young. And when Baptists came along as a result of literal interpretation, they, they realized that, that you were to be baptized as a sign of your faith in Christ, and it came after conversion, not when you're an infant. And so 
as a result of applying literal interpretation there, you had the rise of the Anabaptist movement. And one place that it arose was in, uh, was in Zurich under Zwingli's ministry. He had men like, uh, like uh, Felix uh, Mann and uh, Graustark and Blaurock, and these were men that were early Anabaptists, and they were his, they were his students, and they came to uh, Baptist convictions, and so he brought them up on heresy trials. Because if entry into the church is symbolized by baptism, infant baptism, and the church is identified with the state, then entry into the state as a citizen was through baptism. You understand that? So that now when you say you can't be baptized or shouldn't be baptized as an infant, you're not just making a religious theological statement, you're making a political statement. You're you, because when you blend the church and the state together, entry into one is entry into the other. They're the same. And that entry is marked by, by infant baptism. You became a citizen of the state when you entered into the church. So if you come along and say that all of that is wrong, you are making not only a heretical statement, you are making a statement of rebellion and, and you're a traitor against the state. And so these three men are found guilty of being heretics and traitors, and their punishment is a form of baptism. They're drowned in the lake. And so that is how they were executed. So this is, this is you know, the branches that are coming out of the Protestant Reformation, and it takes time for them to come to understand this, this distinction um, between Israel and the church. Lutherans never got there. The Reformed theologians, John Knox in Scottish, the Scottish Reformed Church, the Anglican Church, uh, the Reformed churches, the, the churches that come out of that de denominations, Congregationalists, uh, Presbyterians, uh, they never got this. Uh, many of them go in, uh, the Reformed churches go into covenant theology but Lutheran Church has a different spin on it, but it's Lutheran theology. And um, then you had uh, Anglican theology, but most of Anglican theology was, was basically Reformed theology. They bought into covenant theology as well. And so this becomes important because if you ask the question, when does the church begin, and you're talking to somebody out of one of those streams of Protestantism, they're going to say the church began either with Abraham or began with Adam. But if you talk to somebody who is of Baptist background, they're going to say it began at the day of Pentecost. You talk to somebody of a dispensational background, but even that's breaking down now because you have a lot of Baptists today who are being heavily influenced by Reformed theology. And so you're going to get a mix there if they believe in covenant theology. And so you have some new blends also that are developing in our age. But this is an important question. The other reason it's important is because you will find some dispensationalists, a very, very small percentage of dispensationalists said, no, 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 the church did not begin at Pentecost. 
the church began when Paul was saved because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. So from Acts 1 to Acts through Acts 8, you have a Jewish church, but that's not the body of Christ yet. We're not into the church age until Paul is saved and God gives him a new revelation of the mystery of the church. And that's the majority of people, and they're called hyper-dispensationalists or sometimes ultra-dispensationalists. And then you had another small segment of those dispensationalists who said, no, 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 the church doesn't begin in Acts. It's still far too Jewish. So you almost wonder if there's an undercurrent of some anti-Semitism there. It's far too Jewish. It isn't until it becomes a Gentile church, which is after Acts 28. So you have the traditional biblical position, I believe, and we're going to look at that tonight, is that the church began on the day of Pentecost. And the issue is why. And one of the things that I find is interesting when you read the ultra-dispensationalists and hyper-dispensationalists is that they place the distinctive of what makes the church the church on the revelation of the mystery of the church. And they totally miss the fact that what begins the church age is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. That's the mark of the church age. In fact, I was reading someone recently who's a progressive dispensationalist, and they too were, because remember, progressive dispensationalism gets a little more influence. They get fuzzy on the covenant, on the new covenant, and its impact today. And they get kind of fuzzy on some other aspects of the church. And so this writer was making a comparison making his comparison between circumcision as entry into the mosaic covenant with baptism excuse me not baptism but with uh with the lord's table but it's not the lord's table that's the point of comparison it's baptism because and not literal water baptism but the baptism by the holy spirit because that's when we're entered into the body of christ at the instant of faith and salvation so that's what we're going to look at tonight as we go through this and to understand why these these things which may seem like like picky little points in theology are crucial because if you don't get it right, it affects your view of Israel. It affects your view of God's plan and purpose for Israel. If it has an effect on a lot of other different things. It affects your view of the church, the mission of the church, role of the church, all of these other different areas. So when we look at this question, when did the church begin, we have to understand what the church is. And that's why last time I started with Colossians 1.24 and 2.19, that it's the body of Christ. Uh, it's his body, which is the church. That's the most clear statement about this in Colossians 1.24, that uh, for the sake of his body, which is the church. So the church is the body of Christ. It's, it's a metaphorical use. And then that is the background for what Paul then says in Colossians 2.19, and not holding fast to the head, who is Christ, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. He's just using a... Some people get down here, oh, we have to understand what the joints are. We have to understand what the ligaments are. No, he's taking a biological analogy of the growth of a human body. And the human body is provided nourishment from the head. That's where the mouth is located. And we take in food, and it nourishes the body... 
And then there are invisible forces that God built into the cells of our body that take that break down the food and use that nourishment to build and grow the muscles and the ligatures and the joints and to develop uh, a mature human body. And that's all that Paul is saying here. He's not saying, well, the, the knitting together represents this doctrine and joints represent that doctrine. That, that breaks down and destroys the metaphor that's being used here. And it all comes, it, the nourishment comes from the head. So I pointed out last time that the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. The first point was basically because of the term mystery. Mystery means a previously unrevealed document doctrine. So that's not revealed in the Old Testament. So it can't be. Uh, uh, it can't have existed in the Old Testament if it if if it's a mis- mystery. And you think that would end the discussion, but it, but it doesn't. Uh, I've already talked about the quote I have at the bottom in Ephesians. Um, Three, two through four, the emphasis on the mystery. By revelation, God made known to Paul the mystery. It had not been made known before. Paul is the first to receive this this information in the mystery doctrine. You'll notice there's a lot of passages here in Ephesians. We will start Ephesians in the next couple of weeks on Sunday morning, and eventually we'll get to this. This is in the middle of the book, but we're going to be dealing a lot with ecclesiology and Christology and soteriology as we go through the book of Ephesians. And Paul makes it clear by verse 5, in other ages it was not made known to the sons of men. Those other ages, if you look at how that's used by Paul, that's referring to the Old Testament dispensations. It wasn't made known to the sons of men. But now... The distinctive is that Gentiles are joint heirs, fellow heirs in the same body. We have been joined together. Ephesians chapter 2 argues that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down and the dividing wall, therefore, between man and God has been obliterated. There's two walls going on there in Ephesians chapter 2. The church is also clearly said to be future in Matthew sixteen eighteen, when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, future tense. It hasn't been built yet. It, hasn't in, it wasn't in existence in Matthew sixteen eighteen. Next point, developing now, going, we've done review with a lot of new material, and now going forward into uh, a more development of the idea, how do we know the church was started at Pentecost? The church could not begin until after Christ's death and resurrection. If we're the body of Christ, how could the church be in existence before Jesus was incarnate, before the incarnation? Acts 20.28, a passage we'll come back to later, Paul says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd what? the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He had to, you have to have the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ before you can have the church. He has to purchase the church before it's his. That's, that's one beginning. In Ephesians 4, 8 through 12, Again, an important passage we'll be looking at to understand what it is to be a pastor. This is one of uh, 
only a couple of places in the New Testament where the noun for pastor is used in the Greek. Uh, mostly it's the term elder. Uh, Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the body of Christ comes into existence and it is matured, it's edified by whom? By these four or five gifts, apostles, prophets, some evangelists, and I believe it's four gifts, pastor, teachers, okay? Those four gifts edify the body of Christ. When are those gifts distributed? Notice I'm working backward to get to the starting point. Verse 8, Therefore, he says, Scripture says, when he, that is Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So the order of events is Jesus has to ascend first. It's a quote from uh, the Psalms indicating a victory ascension as Jesus ascends in victory to heaven. Then he distributes those spiritual gifts. They come after the ascension. Those spiritual gifts that are lifted, listed here as well as the others, but in context, these spiritual gifts are not distributed to the church until after the ascension for the edifying of the church. So that, that argues that there can't be a church in the Old Testament because there's no gifts to, for the edification of the church before the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And in Ephesians 1.22, we're told, And he, that is God the Father, put things, all things under his, that is Christ's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. So he isn't made the head of the church until after the ascension. So again, it can't, there can't be a church before Pentecost in 33 A.D., the next reason that we know that the church begins at Pentecost, Acts 5.14, you have this statement uh, that is made by Luke. He had these, as we studied in Acts, he gives these uh, uh, basically uh, progress reports as you go through the book of Acts. And in Acts 5.14, he said, and believers were increasingly added, notice he says, to the Lord. He understands they're added to the body of Christ. So he says they're increasingly added to the Lord. Now, Acts 5, I know, we all know, I have problems with numbers. But basically, I'm pretty sure since the first grade that 5 comes before 9. And if ultra-dispensationalists are saying that the church begin, does not begin before Acts 9, then you've got a problem here because believers and their Jewish are added to the Lord. They're added to the body of Christ. And in Acts 2.47, uh, Luke writes that, they, that all of these 5,000 that are saved and more are praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Now, it, the reason I put a note there in brackets is because the majority text... Now, you've got to get into a little textual criticism here, but the majority text has the phrase, the church there. Now, remember, the majority text also goes by the term, the Byzantine text. This is the majority of, of, of documents. The, the 
other view of how you handle uh, discrepancies between the text argues that basically the Egyptian texts, the four major Egyptian texts, they're found in the 19th century. Uh, they're preserved a long time because they're down there in the desert in Egypt. Remember, most of the other places where you had scrolls that were copied and passed on were, were not in these dry, dry places where they're stored, where they can be preserved for, for centuries. And if they're, if they're in Greece, if they're in Turkey, they, those are very humid climates and they're going to be destroyed. So they're going to be copied and recopied later on. You won't have documents that are as early as the documents you have in, in, uh, in Egypt. But that doesn't mean the copies are not accurate. You can have a copy of an inaccurate original that is made in the 4th century. And you can have a copy of an accurate original from the second century, and the copies made in the ninth century, and it's newer, but it's accurate, whereas you have an inaccuracy in an older document. So it sounds good when you hear people say, well, the older is better. And that theory dominated textual criticism in the late 19th and up through the midpoint of the 20th century. Then you have the development of what's just called an eclectic view, which is not consistent at all, but I believe the most consistent is the majority text. Now, that's not a King James-only position. You've heard of King James-only people where they think that the King James translation was inspired by, by, uh, by the Holy Spirit, not just the original, but the King James. And they're very prolific, and they have some very sophisticated arguments that they uh, confuse people with. But the King James Version was based on only about eight or nine Greek manuscripts that were available to Erasmus when he printed the first critical Greek text uh, around 15, early 1500s before, uh, before Luther and the Protestant Reformation. But, but that's only eight documents, and they were much older. They were 8th, 9th, 10th century, and they weren't, aren't, and we now know from comparing them with all the others that we found, they weren't, they had a lot of mistakes or a lot of problems with those. So that's the TR. But the TR is a small subset of eight manuscripts from uh, several thousand that make up the majority text. But it, it, it has more in common with the majority text than it does with those four or five uh, Egyptian, old Egyptian manuscripts. So that's just kind of a rundown. We have a whole course that Ron Minton taught here at a Chafer conference several years ago on uh, the majority text and on textual criticism that's up on the Dean Bible Ministries website with the Chafer conference. And you can go back and listen to uh, listen to that, and there's a lot of the handouts and everything are all uh, tied into that 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 location. So I believe that that's what the text, original text, said the Lord added to the church. The church begins in Acts chapter two, Acts eleven fifteen. This is Peter describing what happened when he went to Caesarea by the sea. With um, uh, to see to see Cornelius when the Holy Spirit guides him to a Gentile's house to a the centurion's house, and when he preached the gospel, they responded, 
and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they spoke in tongues in unknown, previously unlearned languages. And when Peter gives a report to this back in Jerusalem, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon upon them as upon us at the beginning. The only time that the Holy Spirit fell on them was at back in Acts chapter 2. And uh, this is also alluded to in or the actual event is described in Acts 10.46. So all of those passages indicate the church began at the day of Pentecost. We have some objections uh, from hyper-dispensationalists, and I want to just answer a couple of those positions and as I said earlier, hyper-dispensationalists or ultra-dispensationalists put the beginning of the church after the day of Pentecost, uh, no earlier than Acts 9 and after Acts 28. What's interesting is that they use this to also negate baptism. Hyper-dispensationalists do not believe baptism is for the church. Baptism was for the Jewish church in Acts 1 through 8, because that distinguished them from the unsaved Jews. That's their argument. And it just doesn't hold, hold water at all. So what we see in terms of answering their arguments is that the church as the body of Christ replaces the physical body of Christ on the earth following his, following his ascension uh, with the descent of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. The physical body of Christ, the humanity of Christ, goes to heaven, and 10 days later, the Holy Spirit uh, descends, and we have the birth of the body of Christ, the spiritual body of Christ in the church uh, from that, that point on. Second thing that we see is that entry into the body of Christ is performed by God the Holy Spirit with the baptism by the Holy Spirit at the instant of faith in Christ. So I just want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, understanding the foundation of our spiritual life. And in Romans chapter 6, at verses 3 through 6 are the passages I'm going to talk about, but Paul begins with a series of rhetorical questions. And that's a device that a speaker uses to get you to think about something. So he's going to ask questions, not expecting you to answer them, but just to get your focus your attention on something. And so he asks several questions, and uh, he's countering the idea that since grace forgave our sins, let's go sin all the more so we can have even more grace. And that is licentiousness. But in Acts uh, 6, uh, 3, he says, Do you not know that many of us, that as many of us, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, that means to be identified or, or enter into him, identified with him, were baptized into his death. Uh, baptism has a literal meaning of immersion into something, but it was used metaphorically to refer to identification with something. So what Paul is saying is that, that at, at salvation we're all baptized or identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is entering into Christ so that all believers in the church age are said to be in 
Christ. We'll do a thorough study of that when we get into Ephesians. So he says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly also shall we be in the likeness of his resurrection." So this is a foundation. What baptism is he talking about here? He's talking about that that instantaneous, invisible work of God the Holy Spirit that occurred the moment that we're saved. It's referred back to by Paul in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen when he says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one spirit, one body. Now, one of the things I want you to note there is he said he's talking to the Corinthians. And he's saying we were all baptized into one body. Now, we know that that body is the body of Christ from these other passages. But those who were baptized were all of us. Now, remember, he's talking to the Corinthians. Now, I want you to picture in your mind the most corrupt, contentious, vile group of Christians you've ever known. They were probably better than the Corinthians, the Corinthians were were just as I mean they, they they confused the Lord's table with a Dionysian wine festival and they all got drunk. They had one guy in the church who committed incest and they didn't do anything about it and it was so bad and so blatant that all the unbelievers in Corinth, the pagans who loved lascivious things were appalled that these Christians would continue to associate with this guy. Paul says they're arrogant, they're puffed up, they are divisive, they're always dividing, and and they they get into these little personality cults with Apollos or uh, Peter or Paul, uh, and the really spiritual ones were followers, called themselves followers of Christ. I mean, it was just a mess. But Paul says, even though you guys are as terrible and carnal and foolish and arrogant as you are, all of us were, past tense, baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have all been made to drink in one drink. We have all become part part of the body of Christ. So this is what starts the church age. It happens at the beginning of Acts. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and we read the initial account. This had never happened before. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, just before the ascension in Acts 1.8, Jesus told them to stay here in Jerusalem when he says tarry. Now, that was uh, unfortunately misused by those who read the uh, King James and it only applied to those 11 disciples that he's saying, wait here, something's going to happen right here in Jerusalem, so don't leave. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That is the starting point of the church. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If you're a hyper-dispensationalist, then you believe that the church doesn't begin until after Judea and Samaria 
and before to the end of the earth. You would bifurcate that verse and say that, well, that first part in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, that wasn't part of the church age. Only this last part to the end of the earth. That's how they would understand that. But we see the fulfillment of that 10 days later in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That they there refers to the 11 apostles, the last group mentioned at the end of chapter 1. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and filled the whole house where, where they were sitting. Then there appeared to, uh, to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the beginning of the church. That had never happened before. It happens, it happens to those apostles on the day of Pentecost. Something similar without the speaking in tongues, tongues happens to the Samaritans who are witnessed to by Peter and John, two apostles who were also at Pentecost. That shows a common thing that happens to both of those groups. Peter then, remember Peter's the one who's given the keys to the kingdom. He's the key figure here. He's the one who's bringing these uh, groups together. Then in Acts 10, he goes to Cornelius and he brings the Gentiles in so the Gentiles, Samaritans, and Jews are now all united in one body, and similar things happen in each place. The Holy Spirit descends, and with the Jews in Pentecost and Cornelius uh, at, um, in Acts 11, the Gentiles uh, speak in languages they haven't previously learned, and the Samaritans, that doesn't happen with them because, remember, they're part Jewish. So the Jews had already been brought in in Acts 1. That's why tongues doesn't happen uh, with them. So this is what's laid out. So my third point here is that the uh, first, this, this first occurs, as I've just described, with the descent of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, 1 through 4, as evidence with the speaking in unlearned languages. So many people miss this, that what God is showing here is that this is the formation of the body of Christ. It's done by the Holy Spirit. He starts with his descent in Acts 2. It's followed up with his coming on the um, uh, Samaritans in Acts 8, 17, and then uh, with the Gentiles in Acts 10, and then the Old Testament saints represented by the disciples of John the Baptist and Acts 19.6. So this pulls it together. This is the formation of the body of Christ. Clearly it shows that the church existed before Acts 9. Uh, in Acts 9.4, Saul is saved. He fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now he hadn't literally persecuted Jesus. He's persecuting the body of Christ. And when he describes this in his, in his first epistle to the Galatians, in Galatians 1, he says, And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Notice that. He's looking back to that period before Acts 9, and he, he talks about those churches in Judea were churches in Christ. 
So we can't have a bifurcation of the of the church in the book of Acts. Uh, Gentiles are added in Acts 10. This is critical to the church. Ephesians 3.6, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. Also reiterated in Colossians 1.26 and 27, this is the mystery among the Gentiles. Okay, so all of that answers the question, when does the church begin? It answers the question towards the Reformed theologians, the replacement theology people who see the church and Israel as just the same uh, uh, member, uh, God's people. We're all part of God's people. The Israel is the church in the Old Testament, and the church is Israel in the New Testament, and we're all one. That leads to replacement theology, and if they're consistent, it leads to anti-Semitism. It answers the hyper-dispensationalists because it shows that they fail to understand that that which distinguishes the church age is not the Lord's table. What distinguishes it is the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which begins on the day of Pentecost. And I've been surprised in my reading of even uh, traditional dispensationalists that they're not clear on that particular point. They'll say it, but they don't develop it. That's what I mean when I say they're not clear on it. They'll say the church begins on the day of Pentecost with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they never really unpack that to explain what's going on there and why that's so significant. When we look at Romans 6, Paul is saying that that's what breaks the the tyranny of the sin nature, and it never happened before. That's why that's the start of the church age. There's something new about the privileges that we have as church-age believers that are rarely ever uh, talked about or developed. Now, once we understand when the church begins, then we can start talking about the development of leadership in the church. And this is important because the church is in a stage of transition. We have to understand that whenever we're dealing with Acts, we've got a transition going on, a change from one dispensation to another. We've got a lot of people, even by Acts 19, who are Old Testament believers. They're disciples of John the Baptist, but they haven't heard about the Holy Spirit yet, and they haven't believed in Jesus as the Messiah until they hear the gospel from from Paul. So there's this transition that is going on, and so we want to read Acts a little bit in terms of how this the leadership developed historically uh, through the book of Acts. To start with, I want to look at a couple of foundational passages. The first is in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2.20, a crucial passage for a lot of different reasons and has implications in a lot of different areas. It, it's had, uh, it has implications for a lot of the aberrations that are go on in in the Pentecostal charismatic movement. A lot of uh, that bad theology has affected Africa, all kinds of people, and all kinds of denominations self-appoint themselves as bishops and as archbishops and whatever. And it's it, they're just lording their authority over other pastors without biblical uh, biblical warrant. And some even will self-appoint themselves as prophets or apostles. Remember Jim, tell, Jim Myers telling me about a pastor 
that he had worked with in Africa who between times that Jim was there, he had uh, taken upon himself the title of apostle and, and Jim sat down with him and explained what the uh, requirements of an apostle were that they needed to have seen the risen Lord and been uh, witnesses of his incarnation and and the man humbly decided that he wouldn't be an apostle anymore. But this is what we run into. So we have Ephesians 2.20 is a really important ber- verse. It, and in that, Paul says, having been built, he's talking about the household of God. Let me pick up the context in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I think the you there is referring to the Ephesian believers as primarily Gentiles, but now you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built, now that's referring to the household of God, might be understood as a, as a relative participle, which was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the foundation. He's using the imagery of constructing a, a, a building. The foundation is laid, but first the cornerstone is laid. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself, and then the apostles and prophets. What's important to understand here is apostles and prophets are foundation. You don't lay the foundation with each floor that you build. And as we go through the 20 centuries of floors, you don't need to relay the foundation of apostles and prophets in each generation. Once is enough. The gift of apostle and the New Testament gift of prophecy were temporary and ended by the close of the canon. Okay, that's when you don't have a completed canon and you don't have complete revelation, the only way you can get answers to critical issues is through direct revelation. And that came through the apostles and the prophets. That was their role. And then, then, so what we see here is that the leadership at the beginning is primarily the apostles, but also the prophets. In Acts 2.37 we see that when these men had responded and heard Peter's message, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? At the beginning, the leadership was the apostles and the prophets. The apostles not referring to uh, any others than those who were specifically directly commissioned by the Lord. Others are called apostles later on, but the, the terms of an apostle as an office in the church were those that were commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. You had others like Barnabas and Junius and a few others who were commissioned by local churches to go out as missionaries. And so the word apostolo, which, apostolo, which means to send out, or apostolos, the noun meaning those who are sent out, is used to describe them. But who sends them out? That's the important thing to distinguish. Are they sent out by a local church? Are they sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the difference between a capital A and a little a. So in the early church, it's the apostles, Acts 2.37. 
um, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Uh, Acts 4.34 and 35, talking about the way that uh, they would sell their property in order to have money to give to the poor. And they brought this, and in verse 35, they laid it at the apostles' feet. So you see the apostles are viewed as the authority of the church. But now you have a problem because probably by this time you have twenty-five or 30,000 people, and that can be a lot of money, and you have to figure out how you're going to manage, store, administer, and, and distribute all of that property. You're going to have to decide... The, what the criteria will be for who gets what and how much. And, you know, we had to struggle with that as deacons here last year, just about a year ago, after Harvey and so many people uh, in the congregation were devastated in different levels and different degrees, and a lot of generous people uh, gave to the Harvey Fund. But then we had to sit down and say, okay, what's fair? How do we distribute uh, this money to these different people. Each has different needs, some more extreme than others, and uh, some have insurance, some don't. I mean, it was just a lot of things to consider. And so we had to work out a procedure for doing that. And this is what happens in the early church by Acts 6. And we're not that far along, maybe a couple of months, and the church is quite large, and they're running into these logistical problems and uh, as a result, there's going to be a complaint. Who would ever think that Christians would complain about anything? And so they complained because there were uh, by, against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now, the Hebrews were Jewish believers living in the land, okay? The Hellenists were Jewish believers who came from Gentile countries who pretty much assimilated to, to Gentile and Greek mannerisms and customs. The Hebrews, those living in the land, uh, might be compared to some degree to Orthodox Jews who were maintaining the traditional uh, Orthodox dress and Orthodox ritual whereas the Hellenists had pretty much given that up over several generations. And so some of their widows are not, getting, are, are not being taken care of appropriately, they believe, and they're being neglected in the daily distribution. And so they're complaining. So what happens? The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. That's a really important precedent that's being set here. It, the role of, a, of, of the apostle was to minister the word of God, like the role of a pastor is to minister the word of God. And uh, sadly, in some church contexts, uh, it's just there, there just aren't enough people to, to do everything, and so pastors end up doing things that they, that they really shouldn't. The pastor's time should be protected so that he can study the word and so that he can provide for the spiritual nourishment of the congregation. And you need others in the congregation who will take up the physical or logistical responsibilities in terms of administration, finances, uh, physical property, things of that nature. So this is how they describe this, is, is that they, we, it's not desirable that we should leave Notice they don't say it's wrong. 
They said it's not desirable. It's not wise for us that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And the verb there in the Greek is diakoneo. The noun is diakonos, where we get our word deacon. Okay, now they're not establishing any office of deacon here. They're just, but, but the precedent here is, look, we've got to have a division of labor. And in one sense, you can call it management and labor, basically. You've got the leaders that, who are responsible for spiritual nourishment and those who are responsible for, for the physical management and labor, dealing with the finances and all those kinds, kinds of things. And so how, they, how did they go about it? And Acts 6.3 Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Notice you have two things going on here. First of all, the congregation, those who are there are to put forth recommendations of the men who are of good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's uh, that term, full of the Spirit, as I've, as I've taught this, is a descriptive term for maturity. It's not describing the filling of the Spirit. It's a different word. It's not describing the uh, pleroma or plerao of Ephesians 5.18. This is pimplemi, and it's describing their, it's a term for maturity. They're, they're full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, uh, those, a double object to the verb. Uh, and then we're going to appoint them. The apostles will appoint them to those positions. So it's not the congregation, as it were, that's appointing them. It is the apostles, but it comes at the recommendation. So you see the involvement of both the people and the, the leadership. And this, it, this comes out of the synagogue practice where you would have uh, both at work in, in selecting leaders within the, uh, w- within the uh, synagogue. And the response in Acts 6-5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnamus, Nicholas, and a proselyte from Antioch. And the word there for chose is, is the word there, eklegomai, and the term is means to choose or select. And the saying pleased the whole multitude and they. The they pronoun refers back to the whole multitude. It is the multitude that selects the seven. And then it is the apostles who appoint them into office and put them into office. Next key term that we're... I'm going to wait till next week. We're already already about 8.35, so we'll get into talking about elders and deacons. And really, we don't find deacons mentioned much in Acts. We do find elders. And what we're going to see is again and again and again with the term apostles and the elders. And that's the term that's used all through Acts is the apostles and the elders. Well, who are the, who are the elders? And a little preview of where I'm going on this is it was recognized by... One of the regional Southern Baptist, not Southern Baptist, one of the regional Baptist groups in America in the early um, 1800s, that the term that's really used in the Bible for the leader of the congregation are, is the term elder. 
And they chose to use that term, but they said, but many people may not want to do this because the custom for, for centuries has been to identify the leader as the pastor. And so that's a good term too. And, uh, and, but that, that really sums it up, that, that even though the word that is used scripturally the most for the leader of the congregation is the term elder, it is the uh, term pastor that has become the conventional term that has been used throughout Christianity to designate the leader of the congregation. And so you don't want to split hairs over that. Father, thank you for this time to study your word tonight and to see how you worked in the early church and what you're doing with us, with the church in this church age. How remarkable this is that you have called us out and that you have uh, brought us into the body of Christ in in a way we cannot even fathom to be a new, a new thing in the history of the earth, uh, Jew and Gentile united together for one purpose, to manifest the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we might think about this, reflect on it, meditate on it, because this is our identity as church-age believers. We pray this in his name. Amen.